Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's returning guest is Cathy Unsworth. Welcome to the show. Hello, Stuart, and thanks for having me back. My pleasure, my pleasure. Now, last time, Bad Funny Booze, we talked about films that were sort of inspirations to or part of the texture of that book. And, yeah. and now we're going to do it. We're going to look at a book of yours called Season of the Witch, The Book of Goth, which is a, I guess, I mean, I, it's like a social a social history of of pop culture through the through the seam of what be, of what you are defining as where goth comes from and what the goth become but i mean i'll allow you to describe it how you want to describe the book yeah no well my initial idea was to look at goth in the period when margaret thatcher took power too when she gets kicked out that's hence the season of the week ah so yeah, so it starts after I I main I think that punk disrupted the music world in the same way that Margaret Thatcher disrupts the political system. And so it starts with the bands that first came out directly out of punk, which is the Banshees and Joy Division magazine and the cure who mm. were there at the time. And then sort of travels through the decade in line with the sort of tumultuous events that we go through in that decade when Margaret Thatcher disrupts the whole of the post-war consensus and the music kind of reacts to that I think it really does and goes from in you know her privatization how she took on the unions how she basically smashed everything to pieces in the middle of the decade with the minor strike and how it ends on this deregulated economy sort of high on the hog of its own hubris really um, and how the music follows that and how all the various youth cultures surrounding goth play into that as well, into that story. So that was my framework, and that was how I first approached it as a timeline yeah. of the eighties, really. And it's it's it, it's it's a really interesting way to sort of use that as your skeleton for building the story, because it would have been very easy, I think, to to do a here's this here's this music, here's that music, here's that band, and they form that band. I mean, and I'll repeat what I was saying to you before we start recording. For me. Anyone that's read David Cavan's book about creation records, I think what yeah. you've done with this story of goth is very is very similar in terms of the 
terms of a wider story as well as a specific story about you can follow the band's line in the, in the book as so far yeah. as what I've read so far, but equally, like you say, the context of the culture that it was in that pop music doesn't come from nowhere; it no. comes from somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and actually, films and film soundtrack music is really important to all the bands that are in the book because mm. um, it's interesting to me how it differs from. Never mind the bollocks straight away, um, how Susie's The Scream and how Unknown Pleasures do sound far more cinematic than that. And they're coming from a different sound palette entirely as mm. well. And, you know, the Banshees were very influenced by um, Bernard Herrmann's music and Psycho. And, you know, you can hear that. And, and Martin Hannett, when he was when he was producing Joy Division, he wanted it to sound like the desolate city after all the post-war rebuild had been going on in Manchester and, and the band talked about how that had actually affected them, the dislocation of their communities were split up and sent to live in high-rises. So I think you can hear all of that imprinted in their music. So whether it isn't um, directly political, it is a comment on the time and the place that it was made, a really big comment. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know if you've come across it, Andy Spinoza's book about about the sort of the economic and cultural change in Manchester, the same, more or less the same period as your book, really, uh, when right. you talk about with Thatcher, and then it kind of kicks on into the urban renaissance. But he starts, his ground zero is Factory Records and Hacienda. Yeah, as being yeah, well, the reason for the urban renewal of Manchester, not not government initiatives, not <laughs> no, indeed, no, it's true, and that's that's such an, an ironic. I mean, I also like the way that Factory has so many meanings. Yeah, you know, to us Derek Raymond fans, Factory's police station, and that was slang in common parlance in Sweeney at the time, but also it's a homage to Andy Warhol, like, you know, and his studios in New York and. The way that they labelled all the products was very Warholian as well. But the fact, yeah, bringing a, a, a manufacturing base back to Manchester, yeah, indeed. But also, also as well, I think with that that punk thing of, of certainly from what Malcolm McLaren was doing, and Wilson picked up on it, the whole kind of situationist element yeah. of the spectacle, not yeah. not the profit, I suppose. I mean, obviously there was part of that that became the, the muddy, yeah. the money muddied things, but certainly. The spectacle was the most important thing at the very first, wasn't it? Yeah, and also I think Jim Furwell, aka Fetus, he yeah. said it brilliantly to me about how because he came to London in the late seventies and he actually got there before the birthday party who were his mates in Melbourne, um, and he got a job in in the Virgin Megastore, but he was also started to do music almost immediately. And uh, amusingly enough, he. His flatmate or squatmate was Keith Allen from the comic strip. Really? <laughs> yes. One of my favourite bits of research was this one. They were all living in a squat in Labrick Grave, um, and Nicky Sudden was in there living in a broom cupboard and in the squat. But it was really funny to me because the Batcave Club, the big goth club where everyone met, was at the same address, 69 Dean Street, as um, the comic strip where that began. So... Between the Nell Gwynn Strip Club Review was all the goths and all the modern, you know, new comedians coming through. <coughs> so, what what, anyway. what fascinated what what fascinated me with the way you start and that and it's and it, it feels like it starts in Manchester, which to me is a big surprise growing up in Manchester. Not because it, not because you, 
I think it's wrong. It's just that I always grew up with the perception of Leeds being goth and Manchester not being goth. But in saying that, in the late 80s when Manchester was was massive, I used to go more so to a place called the Banshee, which unsurprisingly was a was a goth club in Manchester. And you went you went downstairs and it was this fantastical for me anyway, for, for a 17, 18 year old me, it was fantastical. I would, there was like, you know, lots of lace, lots of men in men in corsets with waists that I could not imagine. <laughs> and I I had, you know, I'm from like I'm like from post-industrial North Manchester. So this is the complete and utter new window into a world for me. And we're, and we're hearing, you know, Sisters of Mercy and we're hearing Fields Fields and Ethlim and stuff. No, no, amazing. And one of my favourite quotes is from John Langford. He was at Leeds Union, sort of, he became Andrew Eldritch's best friend um, and was hanging out with him a lot. And there was a pub called the Faversham where they all used to go. And he said it was so brilliant Friday night in the Faversham bogs with all these big brickies going, oh, pass the airspray. Can I have <laughs> But, <laughs> so, yeah. But I was, but also you, you, some of the stuff of that, that was running parallel with punk, and, and and I really hadn't realised some of the the, the 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 level of how popular the National Front was in terms of voting. You quote some figures about the the, the GLC voting. Um, yeah. I remember talking to, and I can't remember his name now, but I think he was the first Cure manager, and uh, he was telling me about like in those like late seventies, early eighties. He said. You'd be a goth coming in on the, and you were talking about coming on the central line, and skinheads yeah. would jump on at Leytonstone. That horrible, I know. And Billy Chainsaw, my friend, who was the man, uh, the PA to Susie and the Banshees from 1978 onwards, he had told me it, how he used to get jumped on and beaten up for being a goth. Mm. It was so frighteningly violent those days, and so those fans were reacting against that. So. You know, one of the things that often gets levelled across is it isn't political, but it really is, and I hope that I demonstrate that throughout the book. No, I think you do. I think you do. Although uh, one of my well, – a memory that always makes me laugh, and it's got almost like a stereotypical goth thing, and again, this would be around about, I'm going to say, 1990, and I'm in a squat in Cheetah Mill, I think it is. Yeah. And there was this speed dealer punk guy, and there was three goths on a, sat on a bed together, <laughs> sharing a three liter bottle of cider. And this guy was obviously whizzing his tits off, and he just says, "For God's sake, bleach your hair blonde and have a laugh for once, will you?" <laughs> and I'll, ne- I'll never forget the picture because they, they just looked up and went, "Anyway, carry on with the cider." <laughs> <laughs> the three little goths, <laughs> modern day fairy story. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Because you, you've because you've written you 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 cover so much detail uh, and you've mentioned the, the the Keith Allen um bit of your research and one thing I always ask with, when I speak to documentarians is you know you you can set out with a with a perception of where you might end up and what you might find out but what yeah. for you in this journey of like putting this under the microscope and doing the book as opposed to the idea for the book what for yeah. you was your favorite sort of parallel or discovery that you could you could put to goth and in popular culture terms, that you wouldn't have done had you not written the book? My favourite, favourite one is the fact that Killing Joke and Arthur Daly came from exactly the same place at exactly the same time. No. Yeah. This road, and it's an interesting, very psychogeographically interesting road, Portland Road in, um, in Holland Park. Right. There was a very 
a fascinating series a few years back about London roads and how they had appeared on Booth's poverty map in Victorian times when, when he charted all the slums of London and how they are now. Mm. And this was the one that had gone the most upwardly mobile from being part of what was then called Notting Dale, which was the villainous quarter under Notting Hill, where there'd been piggeries and potteries in the past and where the Teds were in the 50s. Mm. Um, and it had been, there's a crossroads, which is always important to mythology. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and on one side of this crossroads is, is the, the really big, tall, houses which are now in it's now the richest street in london and it's a bankster's paradise it's where all those hedge fund people have gone to live and okay and so but in 1979 killing joke were in a squat in that road which shows you what the area was like at, at those times because it was still very much the the area that Posh people didn't want to go because all the West Indians had come there since the 1950s. And Peter Reckon, one of the few people who would put them up. And it was a world of of radical politics as well. Um, And this feeds into my research of Bad Penny Please, of course, because this is where IT magazine and Oz magazine start. And it was cheap rents and a place where young people on the dole, as most people were in the the early 1980s. And that's you know, that's Margaret Thatcher's fault, but also it's also a well of extreme creativity. So they Killing Joke had a squat on this road. And they their first single comes out in I think it's August nineteen seventy nine. Right. At exactly the same time, Minder, Arthur Daly, the Winchester Club, <laughs> is next on Clarendon Cross on this road. It it's next door to this pub. Um, Bistro, sorry, called Julie's, where TV executives would hang out. And I have no doubt that Houston Films made Minder, who also made um, The Sweeney, and it was supposed to be a vehicle for Dennis Waterman, but Arthur Daly sort of takes over. But he's such an avatar of the 80s. He is, you know, yeah. what Mark was talking about. But he's also a throwback to the spivs of the 30s, which he used to play. Of course he, he, he did, yeah. Of course he did. Yeah. So it, no one better than George Cullen. He pops up at exactly the same same time and same place as Killing Joke to be, like he is the punchline of the Killing Joke. They're saying in their songs, this, this terrible stuff is going to happen because of monetarism, and, and so it, it so it passes. And and he there he is, the living embodiment of um, dodgy off the back of a lorry monetarism. Indeed. The the, the 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 epitome of deregulate deregulation. Yeah. And individualism. He's exactly. nice little as and as he used to refer to Margaret Thatcher as her indoors at number ten. <laughs> Indeed he did, yeah. I know I've not got this far in the book, but what and I mentioned it already because like growing up the other side of the Pennines from sort of from Leeds and, and Yorkshire. What 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 do you think it was about Leeds Indeed. being such a sort of hotbed for what became I guess the mainstream end of... of well, what, in, John Keenan's F Club, I think, well, it's a sort of convergence of things. He started this club in Leeds College. Hmm. And there's a lot of really soft sell went to Leeds That's College. right, yeah. Yeah, and then Andrew Eldridge came in 78 to study Chinese, but kind of got lost on his way and ended up in the F Club and met the, the amazing DJ Claire Shearsby, who 
more of all my sources say the coolest person in Leeds. <laughs> he fell in love with her. And he re-emerges as Andrew Eldridge. I think the universities were full of really the Sex Pistols had played there and met John Langford said he saw them like on one of his first nights in town as a student coming to the junior. They also had TJ Clark as their teacher. He was the one British member of the Situationist International. So it comes oh, back wow. to what you And he like infected them. So the Mekons, the Delta Five and Gang of Four all founded within the first week of Yeah, going. that's a, yeah. And then Annie Hogan went to Leeds Uni as well to study politics, but then quickly found herself in the Faversham Bar and she ended up DJing and she met Soft Cell um, while she was DJing. She met Dave and, and Mark and ended up being their flatmate. So I think it was a really fantastic scene. And also it's kind of, it's at the centre, isn't it, of Atkinson Grimshaw's Leeds is, you know, the most the great gothic painter of Leeds in its Victorian pomp. And Leeds is where, you know, the Industrial Revolution starts in that part of Yorkshire, really, and all the mining villages around it spread out. There's David Peace was so funny talking about how there was all these little golf clubs and all these little villages surrounding Leeds, Wakefield, Bradford. And then I also find it really interesting that Leeds, Bradford were against each other throughout history mm. since William the Conqueror protected Leeds and harried the rest of the north and they were always against each other until Goff and the miners strike unite them oh wow common yes <laughs> so, yeah because Bradford's really fertile with New Model Army and, and that's right yeah they, yeah yeah well you yeah, get to Hebden Bridge and everyone's got clogs haven't they yeah exactly and I thought it was really quite amazing that William Blake Blake is there at the start of the Industrial Revolution talking about the dark satanic mills coming up there in Yorkshire and well across the land. And then as the minor strike, that's the end of the Industrial Revolution, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, and then today you've got Justin Sullivan quoting Blake's Jerusalem in 1984, their new model song about you know, the end of everything, the minor strike, how it destroyed their communities and everything around it. So, yeah, where where more than all these things have happened there before in this times of the Civil War and the times of the War of the Roses and the, you know since these have been the battlefields of the nation's soul, basically. No, well, so. it's inter- it's interesting because because pop on popular in a popular sense, Manchester and Liverpool have never sort of been pals, as it were even though yeah. the likes of Anthony Wilson and Tom Bloxham, the developer, would often want to sort of make the Northwest a region so you could have the two cities in, but they just, because of the age-old politics of the place. But I remember, yeah. I've spoken to musicians on both sides, and the musicians always see the commonality between the people, because obviously they play to each other's audiences. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's just the kind of rivalry that just, I mean, I don't know, you know whatever the reasons are. I want to mean, I used to, because my dad's, my dad's from Liverpool and I grew up in Manchester. So that was always something that I was very conscious of. So if I, weirdly on a, on, to bring it back to goth, when I used to go to football in the nineties, so I'd get the train from Manchester to Liverpool. Warrington was like the ley line between goth and Scally. Wow. So you'd have wow. the goths going into Manchester oh. and the Scallys going to Liverpool. It was this weird, yeah. weird, I mean, that- Anything, isn't it? I've got, I've got no, it's just a complete anecdotal research there, but it was just you go to the game on a Saturday and then you'd have the people going 
the people who be going into Manchester to because the it, around Victoria Station, goss would hang out and stuff. Just you know, teenagers as teenagers would do, like yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was a real, it was a really interesting thing to observe that kind of literally going two different directions. But Warrington was where the split was. <laughs> Amazing! It'd be great to do a youth culture map of Britain, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, I would, the interesting thing for me, and what this makes, what this harks me back for, and I feel like Father Time when I do it is because I've, I've been teaching at a university this last year, and mm. and one thing I noticed, I mean, it's only a small university, but nevertheless, it's got it's got you know hundreds of people. There's no ov- obvious tribal ways of people looking, dressing. I couldn't guess what one person was into from another. Whereas I went to Birmingham Poly ninety one ninety four. Yeah, and you could you yeah. could just look around the the student union and know who's into what because of how they looked, and certainly a goth you could spot from hundred yards. Well, this was the great thing about goth. I could see who you know. I could spot people across the vast fields of Norfolk, my fellow field goths. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was a, I was always more I was always more I guess goth goth curious than I was full on goth. I mean, I had the biker jacket, but I was like god flesh and things like that by that point more. Because yeah. industrial is is obviously a cousin, isn't it? Well, it sort of comes from Killing Joke and Beat yeah, anyway. Yeah. You know, a lot of their early stuff has a massive effect on, on Season of the Witch, Book of Goth is out now. How, how, what's the best place for people to get it from if they're going to go and buy it? Where would you say to go buy it from? Well, I would say try and buy it from your local indie bookstore if you can, because it's got good distribution and it should be there. Or obviously it's going to be in Waterstone. Or there's a website called The Goth Shop where you can buy it. That'd be quite meta to buy it from there. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'll put a link in the show notes then. Thank you very much. Yeah, so that, uh, you can get it from Rough Trade online as well if you haven't got a local Rough Trade shop too. So, yeah. Brilliant. Well, look, places. well, I'll put link. I'll put those links in the show notes so people can make that easy for people. Um, Thank you. And now we've now we've ventured out of goth. We're going to venture into three films that have impacted yeah. everything in your adult life. Yeah. Uh, for the uninitiated who hasn't heard this before, you'll come into this show first time round. The rules are straightforward. Kathy's given me three movies. We're going to talk about each movie for five minutes at a time. And when we hear this sound, you hear that okay at your end, Kathy? Oh, yeah. Chillingly, sir. DEFCON 1. When DEFCON 1 happens, 
Uh, that's the end of five minutes, and we move on to the next film. That seem okay? Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, look, uh, let's let's jump back. I mean, the the lead guy's outfit is very goth in many ways. Uh, let's jump back to 1955 to yeah. Night of the Hunter. Do you want to tell us about where where that comes into your life and how you see it and what the impact no, is? It's the film that haunts my goth book, actually, and it haunted me ever since I first saw it. It's Charles Lawton, the great British actor, his only film, Hollywood film, as a director. Okay. It stars Robert Mitchum in his probably most charismatic role of preacher Harry Powell, a a con man who was here in prison as he's about to be let out of a fortune, a widow living in this little sleepy town. In the out, in out, in the sort of mid Midwest America, by mm. America, he hears this vulnerable widow. He goes dutifully out to court her. Um, he's got love tattooed on one knuckle and hate tattooed on the other. And remember the, the frame. Remember the frames in the film. Yeah, and he's with his black stetson on and his outfit. He was um, very much imitated by one of my favourite uh, singers. Um, the Gun Club's Jeffrey Lee Pierce. He he used yes. to on 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 Preacher Powell for his imagery, and then then Nick Cave also I think became enamoured of the same film and drew upon him. And one of his videos, actually the one he did with Kylie Minogue, uh, "While the Wild Roses Grow," is is a direct homage to the beautiful world of Night of the Hunter that I'd never thought of that. That Law and created, and it's a very Sidney Cortez is his director of photographer who said he was always called upon to do weird things. <laughs> and they make this landscape into a life, a dark fairy tale. Because the day after Preacher Powell, um, he get, Shelley Winters, sorry, I should say, is playing the, uh, the widow in question, whose name is Willa Harper. And she's got two little children who are not quite so taken by their new stepdaddy. And the day after they get married, Shelley is, we don't know where she is, but we, well, the rest of the town don't, but her car is in the bottom of the lake and there's an amazing scene with her hair floating like in the water like seaweed. And she's, and the little children have to go on the run from Robert Mitchum and he, he stalks them through the night and they take a raft down the stream and it's, like a gleaming world with little frogs and little creatures and and they're rafting down this moonbeam river and he's just following casually along behind them on his horse, singing these old cowboy songs and always managing to keep a pace with them, like a nightmare. It's the, the mm. feeling in a nightmare. And, yeah, it was so powerful, but unfortunately, and Robert Mitchum and Shelley went, as they said, it was the best film they'd ever worked on. And the one with the director was the best director to work from that they ever had. And they were both completely different actors. She did the method. And obviously Robert Mitchum just could, was a, some kind of genius, could learn the script overnight and just went with it. But they both said they'd never worked with such a good director as Charles Lawton. But it didn't go down very well on its initial release. I was going to say, for 1955, this was a fairly subversive movie, wasn't it? Because we pre, I mean, we predate a, Peeping Tom and we predate Psycho, don't we? Yeah, this is the sort of blueprint for David Lynch to follow this film. Mm. And uh, I, Elephant Man looks quite a lot like 
Night of the Hunter as well. The, the beautiful, the weird, beautiful black and white noir imagery, that fairy tale, and that little thing of innocence. You know, the children are the innocents. And when I watched um, uh, Elephant Man again, I couldn't help but being struck by the fact that he was such an innocent and such an outsider. Do you remember? Do you remember when you first saw Night of the Hunter? How it came? How it came to your attention? I actually saw it around Billy Chainsaw's flat, who I mentioned earlier. All right. It was in about nineteen ninety one when I first met him because I, I had gone done a bit of work for Susie in those days um, mm. for her superstition album. I did a bio. Okay. He lived near me on Portobello Road, near Portobello Road, and he showed it to me, and it was I was absolutely mesmerised by this film and, and haunted by it, and I think. It's the one that, that has stood the test of time for me. Mm. It never loses its power every time I watch it. It's so beautiful and so disturbing. And nobody could have played that part. Really scarily, it is based on a real person as well. Yeah, yeah, and, when, yeah. and when you look up Harry Powers, the real guy, he did get away with murdering. Well, he got caught in the end, but he did murder two women and their children. So the children escaped thanks to Paul Thornton. Oh. There's our five minutes, Cathy. We'll have to move on to another black and white fable. We do, but in a in a way, it's weird. As you were talking about it, I'm thinking the next film is 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 almost like an exact opposite in many ways, in terms of yeah. relationship between a kind of enigmatic adult and a group of children. I'm indeed talking about 1961's Whistle Down the Wind. The most beautiful film. Um shot in the Lancashire countryside near Clitheroe. Um, and directed by Brian Forbes. Um, yeah, it's the story of three little children who find a runaway murderer living in their hayton. Mm. Mistake him for Jesus. It's so amazing setup. It's such an amazing setup. And it, yeah, it's so beautiful how innocent those children are, and and the it's scripted. It was based on a book. Haley Mills plays the oldest of the children, and she's wonderful in this part. Alan Bates plays Jesus, or the fella in the, mm. in the hayloft. And he's probably in his, his rugged Heathcliff-esque prime in this. He is, yeah, 60, yeah, 61. Yeah, and lovely Bernard Lee plays their dad, who I always love to see Bernard Lee in any film. He is so solidly dad-like and brilliant. And one of my literary heroes, um, Keith Waterhouse, wrote the script with his partner, um, Willis Hall. Uh, it was based on a novel that Hayley Mills' mum wrote, which had been set in Kent, but they roughed it up a bit and, and set it up north. And okay. uh, it, the little boy, the little brother, he's got spectacles. He's the most wonderful actor. Um, and he is, I'm just trying to look up his name. Sadly, I can't even remember <laughs> his name. He's so wonderful. Um, he it's like a little mini Keith Waterhouse. He's the voice of... Is he Norman Bird? Is it is Eddie? No, Norman Bird is the old... He's the one who chucks the cats into the... Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. He's kind of a staple for... Because um, Dickie Attenborough, who produced it, and um, Brian Forbes, who directed it, sort of became a team, a really brilliant team, and they made loads of fantastic films together. And he was one of their regular ensemble cast, he was. Ah, right. Um, he's in loads of them. He's in um, the Fantastic League of Gentlemen with them as well, which before they started doing their own films. But that's 
Brian Ford wrote the screenplay for that. And so he's always turns up in their films and he's brilliant. But anyway, this little boy is basically like the little Keith Waterhouse. And he has these brilliant moments when the girls are really carried away by the fact Jesus is in the hayloft and he gets really annoyed and says, it's not Jesus, it's just some fella. <laughs> That's a cracking line. It's brilliant. And anyway, it's kind of a story about, you know, they believe in that. And and there's all this allegory to the Bible and that they are betrayed and, and that the disciples come to the to the hay barn, all their friends come from from school to see the little baby Jesus. And, and then Haley Mills goes to ask the local vicar about, you know, how can it be true? And he can't really answer her question. And then, you know, I don't want to put a plot spoiler on it, actually, because I remember posting up something about this film one Christmas time saying, we always watch it at Christmas with my father and or it's one of his favourite films. And right. it, now it's become my default Christmas movie. And one of my friends who had quite young children at the time said, oh, I'm going to show it to my daughters. And first of all, they went, oh, no, I'm not a black and white film. And then they were spellbound. Oh, that's it. good and to hear, isn't it? Because I think good storytelling, it don't matter, does it? No, it, no. It, so what, what, what was, when, how did, again, how did this sort of come across your... This was actually another part of Bad Penny Blues because I started getting really seriously into Brian Forbes and Dickie Attenborough and what they've done together through the L-shaped room, which they, the Lynn Banks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And weirdly enough, I, I was just reading up a little bit. I didn't realise that first of all, Hayley Mills' mum was not happy with Brian Forbes' decision to um, set the film in Lancashire rather than Kent. And I got the opportunity to meet Lindley Banks and she didn't like the fact that he'd also moved the location of her original novel from Fulham into Labrick Grove. But it makes total sense for me, that film to be in Labrick Grove because that's where she would have met all these characters that she meets in the film with the jazz musician, the prostitute. They all would have lived in Labrick Grove at that time, whereas maybe not in Fulham. And I think this just works so much better that it's in that beautiful landscape yeah, you know, and the the voices of the little children are they brilliant in that local dialect that that Waterhouse brought to that story. It roughs it up. A little I was going to say it's, it's interesting because I didn't know I didn't know that the the switcher location. I just can't imagine it being no, anywhere but no, no, and it's because what we just talked about being the sort of industrial heartland. Oh no! Five minutes again. <laughs> And now we have to cross the sea to a faraway place. We do, we do. And uh, it's probably probably the least gothic. <laughs> it, yeah, it's not really, except for in it, the subject matter is pretty grim and gothic. Indeed it in is, way. indeed it is. We're talking about 1990s film by Martin Scorsese, Goodfellas. Did you see this at the cinema? Did you get to see Yes, this? I did. I saw it when it came out in the King's Road at a cinema at the end of and it blew my tiny mind it's the the music is so fantastic and the way everything looks mm. is so fantastic it's um martin scorsese is probably most successful realization of everything he's into in one movie i, I totally agree yeah yeah and with such a wonderful cast as well with um jay pesci and um robert de niro and ray liotta sadly no longer with us and the brilliant Lorraine Bracco, all, 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 and Paul Savino was poorly the gang boss. So yeah, 
that you're swept away into the world of this little boy who always wanted to be a gangster because he didn't want to be a square and he didn't want to be like all the schmoes on this sidewalk and it's in this beautiful world of doo-wop and and brilliant 60s music on the jukebox and these suave Italian guys, sharp suited, not having to work like everybody else. You can totally see why he falls in love with this world and wants to not be, which in a way has, I think, its analogies with youth, youth culture. That's why we all try not to be normal and boring when we when we are his age, when he gets drawn into seeing this glamorous guys sitting over the street sitting outside at night and wants to be part of the world it's that yeah they look they look superb they don't have to work i want to be like them that's why people join bands isn't it? indeed indeed i mean do, do, i mean can you did it i i don't remember i don't remember what the the big i mean it's a film that's so so, so established as canon now Mm. And and like you said, and it probably was commercially his biggest hit still. I think to this day, and it's the one that you know it's it's, it's evergreen because it never it never sort of it never tires. But do, yeah. when it was fresh and you're seeing it at the cinema, do you, what, what can you remember? Can you recall like the the, the atmosphere of, of coming out of the cinema from that one? Yeah, I was absolutely blown away by it, and the, the soundtrack had a massive amount to do with how. And I think that that's something Scorsese does brilliantly. And he was inspired by Kenneth Anger, who also recently sadly passed, although he, he did leave the devil does look after his own. He <laughs> was 96. So, but he was the first person to use that on Scorpio Rising. as They, they sang exactly the same sort of beautiful 60s songs that Scorsese would use as an ironic commentary on, on the action and, and he, Scorsese does that so brilliantly in Goodfellas. You go from Tony Bennett singing Rags to Riches to when it all starts going nasty, you start getting cream, the sunshine of my life. And then it ends when it's all gone totally tits up with Sid Vicious singing my way. And the trajectory of the, the story matches the, the music going from this sort of teenage laugh on the streets of Brooklyn to it all getting corrupted and as the 60s gets darker and darker as well. And, you know, it all goes, he loses all his dreams and everything through greed and avarice. Yeah, and I mean, it's... Pride it, and, and, you know, school says he wanted to be a priest at some point, so he's showing his moral outcome. Yeah. If you it, take this path and, and how you're going to end up in the suburbs having marinara sauce with tomato ketchup on noodles. <laughs> And that's going to be your fate to be forever worsened when you were a kid. So it's a powerful story. And that's another reason why I think that it keeps it um, keeps fresh and it keeps its resonance. You know, but it's, it's interesting because the way, the way what, what I think Scorsese does really well, which is as the impact on its audience, is that while we get the less, we get the moral lesson, same with Wolf of Wall Street. But we don't yeah. we don't lose our affection for the gl- the glamour and the excitement and the rebellion. We don't we don't yeah, think we don't think never do that. We just think, oh, you know, they're but for the grace of God or whatever. But you don't think it's almost like you don't think bad of them. He manages to tell you a story which is morally reprehensible and you can accept that and you're yeah. not fighting that. But then you also go, Yeah, but it's a bit cool as well though, isn't it? I know because they even management, even they're in prison making the spaghetti and getting that is such a moment. That's that's the one that 
I used to watch this film five billion times with my brother, and every Friday night we would try and recreate—not literally with the razor. Blade. I was going to say I've never been able to slice my garlic that that fine. <laughs> but we want to be eating good Italian food by the end of watching the film. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, yeah. Oh man! Hey, that was a quick. It was. Well, yeah. look, that's that's your uh, that's three films that have impacted everything you had live, Kathy. Yes. Thank you for sharing those. They were that was a good mix, and I like. I do. I, I, I'm not sure whether it was on purpose or not, but it was a lovely segue to go from the chat about goth into Night of the Hunter. Yeah, uh, no, I did want that one to you first because I think that probably is my favourite film of all time, and yeah. it does feel my goth book and you'll see it popping up all over the place. Brilliant in the book. Yeah. Well, look, from I've not read all the book yet, and for the listeners who who are hearing this conversation, I mean, one of the things that I've been, I'm enjoying about the book so far is that you, Kathy. You, you you write us into the moment like you, like we're in it now, you know, and I think that's a real a real powerful part of your writing that I, that I really enjoy. I've really enjoyed so far. It's really interesting, but having read your novels, for, for, and I'd obviously read your, your journalism before. But yeah, I don't think I could have written this book though if I hadn't read all those novels first. Oh, really? Yeah, it teaches you the discipline and the structure, of, but also you've got to tell a really good story. Mm. And with the, this amount of material, you've got to fo- fo- focus on what your narrative is, the way yeah. you do when you tell the story. So I think it's really, you know, they, it's all fed into each other. It's like like I've been in training my whole life to write this book. <laughs> well, it, it show it shows. It's really it's really tight, and it's real. And it feel, but like what what like I say when you put us in the action, I, I, it feels I feel like you've 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 sort of got your finger on a pulse of something. You know, you've you've got us. To what's exciting, or why excitement's going to come? Almost, you know, you're you're setting up the excitement as well as you're going. Isn't it exciting? It's the spinning nationwide wheel of memory. That's how I think. <laughs> it. Beautifully put, beautifully put. But but it's I do. I mean, you mentioned the word the term before, but I do the, the kind of psychogeography side of it is yeah. is the bit that I find when you take us you're taking us to different parts of the country. And it's the same time. It's the same year, or it's twelve months later. So why yeah. should it be so different? Or, or even just simply Robert Smith moving from Blackpool to Crawley. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah. you know, just it's how decisions that are out of your hands yeah. shape yeah. a life. But yeah. you can't posit. You know, I write screenplays. One of the things that they say about screenplays is that they have to make sense. Yeah. Whereas real life never does. So what you've done. It makes sense of the chaos, which I think is a beautiful thing. A, thank you. That's an amazing compliment. <laughs> I so. Well, on well on that then, on that positive note, I will say thank you very much for joining us on the Britflix podcast. Well, thank you, Stuart. It's been a pleasure ever, ever. Indeed. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.